interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome everybody to my bloody podcast. Oh my god, we have a wonderful show today. We have a legendary, an intercontinental champion of filmmaking horror movies in his new film, Happily wonderful film everybody should see it ben david grabinski is joining me brian kluger on my bloody podcast welcome to the show hey man i'm just happy to be here i am happy to be here we're going to talk about all things happily in film but first like the movie the sound of music we have to start at the very beginning where did it all start for you Ben David in film? Was it something you watched when you were younger with your parents? Did you sneak a VHS from the local video store? Where did it all begin for you in film? Uh, I was obsessed really early. Um, You know, it's interesting because like when I was younger, the main stuff I was into was like the stuff that like everybody else liked when they were like six, seven, eight, like, you know, I really like Batman, Ninja Turtles, all that stuff. But the real formative things for me came from when I started to watch like the edited version of movies for adults uh, on TV, you know, so watching the diehard movies, but then, you know, starting to see stuff that was more darkly comedic. I mean, I remember very vividly, like the first time I saw anything that was remotely like funny, but also dark, um, something wild, like really, blew my head wide open i think you know in hindsight i sort of realized i was really excited about things that um made me uncomfortable but also had levity to them you know i wasn't like self-aware of those things as a kid uh but i wanted to make movies since i was like 10 years old um it's all i ever really wanted to do so it's nice that 28 years later i'm sitting here with a movie it's funny because like Commonwealth Media, who financed and made this, is run by this guy, Chucky Duff, who I coincidentally, as a kid, we would make movies together with like our Dick Tracy action figures and like toys where we were doing like fake stop motion um, stuff. So it all really has come full circle. (laughs) That's wonderful to hear. And so when you were 10, did you have like an over the shoulder... uh, video camcorder that you would make oh, no. I didn't have that or cable so I had a very weird life of being a guy who wanted to be a director but I couldn't make anything like you always listen to these podcasts and someone's like oh well my dad brought home an eight millimeter tape or well they did this and it's like no I didn't I couldn't afford any of that and my parents didn't have any of that no video camera no anything when I was 16 I had a really bad high eight camera that I would make some stuff with with a friend but really just unreleasable unscripted things um so i basically just would sit and daydream in my head about this stuff or read anything i could that was like any making of book about movies like oh if there's a making of jurassic park sign me up making of the shadow sign me up i just everything i read every magazine it was like pre-internet 
And then once the internet happened, that like changed everything because when I, you know, I turned 16, so like around 99 or whatever, you'd like find the true lies script online. And then I'd read that 10 times. Like I didn't go to film school. I kind of learned everything from just watching way too many movies and reading like the true lies and big Lebowski script a lot. Um, what, what did those teach you specifically with true lies and big Lebowski? Cause those two films probably are, I mean, at least big Lebowski is one of the best written films ever made. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. I remember being just so blown away by every monologue as I read the script before seeing the movie. Um, and I just, I remember on the page it feeling so much like a film noir detective movie, but the league is not a detective and their their movies are not like improv movies so all the stuff is there um but it was like I, I think i just remember those two scripts being so good at conveying kind of mood and energy whether it's like true lies like the way he'd write action felt like you were watching the bathroom fight and big lebowski you could just get the tone so well from the page um and yeah it's like those things it, it, they weirdly it's sort of like you internalize your own concept of like structure and stuff in movies from watching too many but then when you like read it on the page those two things kind of click i think like the only book i ever read on screenwriting was one that um the reno 911 guys i'm having a brain fart uh who did night at the museum and all that stuff they wrote a book on screenwriting which i really enjoyed but i i read that one after i'd been working as a screenwriter uh but that was a really good book i liked it that's great. That's wonderful. And so when did you actually start uh, writing screenplays for yourself or for somebody else? Was it during school? Was it after school? Uh, so I'm in college at Iowa State. I chose journalism because it had the least math requirement. Um, and also just because I liked journalism. So but I mainly skip class and watch movies. And then I was always planning on directing, but not writing. And then my in between my sophomore and junior year of college, I decided to stay in my apartment in the small town, Iowa, instead of going back home. And what I realized was like, no one was there. Uh, so like, it's not like there's a lot of things to do. So I was like working at Wendy's, donating plasma, reading preacher trades. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna get final draft and write a script. And I wrote a script on a whim that was very kind of preacher inspired it was like a action comedy that also dealt with like the apocalypse and like religious elements um it was about a a bunch of anarchists were going to start world war three so god took three cowboys from the old west and brought them to present day and sent them on a mission to save the world and uh it was nuts but i shared it with some people and the second people were like oh we like this i got like i guess i'm a writer like I went from like having no confidence as ability to write screenplays to like immediately being like, I guess I'll just keep doing this. Um, and I wrote like two more scripts and moved to LA and then someone optioned one of them. And then I worked as a writer or I've been working as a writer for 15 years uh, in the attempt to direct a movie and it finally happened. So hooray. Right. Right. And I'm glad you brought up preacher. Uh, that's one of my favorite uh, books for a long time <laughs> mm -hmm. since that came out all those issues uh great great stuff uh so you know with skip trace and are you afraid of the dark did all of that lead to happily 
I mean, nothing did. I mean, that's the craziest thing about anything is you try to make these plans and then nothing works out. You know, I got paid to write a bunch of movies that no one made. And then I made a short in 2010 in order to direct this other script I'd written. Mm -hmm. But after seven years of that not getting made because it was really expensive, I finally decided, okay, I'm going to just sit down and try to come with a concept I really love that doesn't need a lot of money to execute. And that was Happily, which I wrote in 2016. Um, Skip Trace was like a crazy thing because like I met to direct on that. And it got down to me and another guy and then I didn't get it. And I found out it was Rennie Harlan. And I was like, why am I even competing? Why would I get the job? He's directed 20 movies and I love like 10 of them. I even mentioned one in Happily. And I'm like, I hadn't made a movie yet. So it felt a little bit like Robert Downey Jr. and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang when he's like, no, you're here to just like shave a couple million off of Colin Farrell's price tag. You were never going to get the job. Um, but but on that case they're like hey we need someone to do a rewrite for Rennie so I I met with him and we talked about Adventures of Ford Fairlane for like an hour and I realized I was like in the bag from that and I only worked on that one for 30 days and after being paid to write like 15 movies the one I spent 30 days on I get credit on and it gets made Um, and I don't even know if I have like a single joke in the movie Uh, but it was like a great it was like a blast I mean I love Rennie I got to you know, right action scenes for a Jackie Chan movie. Like it was great, but very unorthodox process. And then um, I made Are You Afraid of the Dark after I shot this. Uh, they w- weren't aware of this. These were <laughs> separate things where I, um, I got the job while I was in prep. And then I had to write all three scripts as soon as I wrapped this. So I wrapped this, then wrote all those episodes, went to Vancouver to make it, then came back to LA and finished this movie. So uh Basically, the point of it is like, I spent seven years trying to direct a movie that didn't happen. And then I stumbled into a Jackie Chan movie and a kid's TV show I'm proud of in this. So the point is just keep trying to make stuff because you can't decide, first I'm going to do this, then it's going to lead to this, then I'm going to lead to this. It's, it's very rare that anyone actually has control of their own narrative in fact, I think a lot of times a narrative people sit, present about their career is like, in hindsight, you're connecting the dots, like, but there wasn't really a process there. Or maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Oh, I, I think you know what you're talking about. I, it's, a, it's a fascinating, entertaining story, but it, it's worked out, you know, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's <laughs> like I somehow reach a point where I got to make a movie that's exactly what I wanted, that it's weird as fuck and I'm really proud of. Um, and it was worth the wait. I just, you know, wish I had less gray hairs now. <laughs> well, we'll have to talk about those gray hairs because I've got some too, but I would imagine you got some, uh, well, making this my hair since quarantine started. I usually cut it every three weeks. So now it's like, I'm very aware of the amount of gray hair and it's okay. I mean, I'll be fine. Right. Yes. Yeah, when I did that, uh, all the, all the gray hairs and the beards and red hair, all, I was like, I had gray hair. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, when you moved to LA at 22 to make movies, you know, you grow up with this thing that, Oh, Spielberg made his first movie at this age and PT Annis made Boogie Nights at this age and blah, blah, blah. But no one's like, Hey, George Miller made his first movie at 33. And he also only got to make it because the government just gave people money back then in Australia. So you kind of look at your career from the same perspective of like comparison, but these are like anomalies, like the things where like everything goes 
exactly as you want it right away, which actually is a good transition to happily because happily is about comparing yourself to other people and how that can't make you happy. But anyway. Right, right. So with happily, did was this based on some sort of uh, true story of sorts that you heard about or you were a part of? Well, it's not that it's based on a true story, but it's based on like real like emotions and fears and angst from being an adult and being in like couple friend groups and the the way that everything can kind of feel more like high school than it really was but like this is a paranoid thriller but it's like emotional paranoia like do my friends really like me uh is my marriage working uh you know questions like that but you know at the end of the day i was just trying to make sort of a 90 minute twilight zone episode about marriage and adult friendships that was funny (laughs) and specific and weird and you know now we're here on a podcast no it was it, i really enjoyed the movie <laughs> i related to a lot of it well, uh, i mean i mean hopefully good you know no no it, no it was really good really good and you know i'm curious on when your your writing process for this so you know w- looking at the trailer on youtube and one of the top comments under the paramount uh youtube trailer kind of spelled out kind of what the person this user thought the movie was going to be about and end like and when I read that I was like oh he couldn't be further from the truth here he's gonna have a great like 180 done on him (laughs) well that's uh it's hard to talk about the movie because to me by design the entertainment value of it is mostly related to never knowing where it's going Mm -hmm. it's you know, I, I feel like every 10 minutes, the movie kind of shifts in a way that unless you're in my head or read the script, it's probably hard to predict. It's funny because the trailer shows everything and nothing. It's it's weird because you see everything, but you also you can't really parse it. There's been some really funny YouTube comments. Like one guy said, uh, this is why I abhor American films. And I'm thinking <laughs> like, this is not if this was like most american films i would have gotten a lot of money to make it i I made it for not a lot of money because it's more like international films that mix tone and genre (laughs) it's like i don't remember the last american movie i saw that felt like sort of like a wannabe albert brooks existential relationship movie but like david lynch sort of but also a bunch of couples trapped in a house movie but also de palma and it's like i just don't feel like not even an issue of quality. I'm just saying in terms of what the movie is, I don't, I don't think you'd say this is like a traditional American movie. Maybe. Right. No, I, I wouldn't either. Um, I, that's an interesting comment that user made. Well, but, there, uh, I mean, there's been some really fun, weird predictions. Like the other thing is like, I wrapped the movie before anyone saw Parasite before the world premiere. And then there's a lot of, Oh, this seems like an American rip off of Parasite. And I'm like, if I, had seen Parasite before making this, it would have scared me out of making my movie because like, how can anything live up to that? Like, can you imagine someone like saw Parasite like last spring and they're like, I'm going to make this movie. I just, <laughs> it doesn't feel, doesn't feel that plausible to me. Oh, that, that was good. Um, so when did uh, Jack Black come aboard? So I wrote the script um, in uh, April, 2016. And then uh, 
it, it went around and stuff. And I got a meeting with Jack Black's producing partner, Spencer Berman, who really liked it. And he's like, I think Jack would respond to this. Do you think I could give it to him and see if he wants to, we can be attached as producers. And I love all things Jack Black. And I was like, yeah, dude, if he loves it, I wouldn't, of course. And I remember very vividly getting the call from him, like from the set of Jumanji for him, like to tell me how much he liked the script and he wanted to produce it. Um, and that was sort of the first step. I mean, it still took several years after that because it, it's, not a movie you can easily put into a box and i didn't want to change anything so there'd be people like hey we want to give you x amount of money will you change the ending and i'd be like no or people say hey we want to give you x amount of money but you have to cast this guy and i'd say no um you know i'm not saying that's a sane approach but it did lead to me making a movie that i have no regrets on but it also you know it it, it took like three years to be into, into production on the movie, um, which can be normal, but it's also just tricky too. Cause it's like, I'm, I never made a movie. So the subtext of a lot of conversations is, d d does this guy know how to make a movie? Um, luckily I didn't have that problem with actors uh, in terms of like, especially the ones that I cast, but it, it is funny. Like even people who really like the script and like me and wanted to make it when they saw the final movie, 99% of them were like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. So either way, but they meant it in a good way. But either way, um, it, it's, it was, it's been like a fun thing because it's really like years and years of a movie being in your head um, and nobody else's and just trying to make those intentions become a real movie someone can go see in a theater or hit play on is uh, a whole process in and of itself. Right. Especially when there's like no comps for the movie. I mean, that's what Jack liked about it. I think when Jack Black first read it, he called me and said it felt like uh, like it like it's, it makes me like Charlie Kaufman and Murder by Death. I would jokingly call it like if Charlie Kaufman did Clue, but it's still not right. And I also would never imply that I can write anything as good as adaptation. But in terms of being like offbeat, then maybe that's right. All right. All right. I could see that there. Um, and I, this cast is just like the perfect cast. I'm so glad that like how much input did you have on casting? Because with people like Joel, Carrie, uh, Paul, Natalie, Charlene Brecken, and then of course, Stephen Root, who one of my favorite performances of his uh, is in um, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? His small role in there, but it's just like so nuanced as the radio guy, but like, you got these. How much input did you have on this casting? Because it really is like a tag team of great performers here. I don't know if this is like a shithead thing to say, but like it was a hundred percent involvement. Like uh, it, it, you know, like the my deal was that I had to pick a Tom and Janet that my financier agreed upon, and then the rest of it I could. It was like my decision, and luckily my financier Commonwealth media was so great because they loved both of those choices um you know for me it was it was a really great experience because it was like I, if i liked someone and i really liked their work and thought they do a good job and they liked the script i felt like it would work out because like if you read this hundred weird pages and you're like i want to meet the guy who wrote this i'm basically it's fine it's gonna be great and it was 
because everyone would just felt like, oh, we want to make something that feels different. We feel like we keep getting sent the same scripts. Um, let's go on an adventure. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think the worst thing that can happen is it's some movie that's buried on some streaming site that someone comes across some night and hits play and then is at a party. And they're like, hey, Joel, I watched this movie happily last night. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was a thing I made. I thought it was going to be cool. It's like, what's the worst that could really happen? <laughs> but the upside is if it is the cool, fun movie they wanted to make um, or they want to be part of, then, you know, great. But it, it, it felt beginning to end like a real, like, creative experience. And I think everyone had a really good time because it was, you know, it wasn't made by committee and we all felt like we were getting away with something, um, which I think is really the, the best way to make something is on some level, you need to feel like you're robbing a bank and that you're not going to get arrested, I guess. Well, that's a great way to look at it. And that's the way that's pushing the bounds and art. I like that. That's a great explanation. Yeah. So I've got to talk about uh, the fantastic score and uh, musical cues because uh, we've had uh, Joe Trapanese on the show before and just love his work. But how did you get him to score? And then I'm going to get into some of these songs because don't 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 you think twice. I noticed the Bill and Ted song in uh, I Still Believe uh, um lost boys song in there i was very excited <laughs> uh yeah the honestly you, you do reach a point where it's kind of hard like i'm bad at taking compliments um and you know you usually only like remember the negative things people say but every time someone says they like the music in this movie i feel great because it's like it's so from my own stupid brain and following my gut in very uh you know, it's like, so Joe Trapanese, uh, Dave Green, who's an EP on this, he directed the last Ninja Turtles movie in uh, Earth to Echo. He's one of my best friends. And he basically came on just to like, he loved the script so much that he just wanted to help. So he basically, without being paid, was just like a producer on the movie to kind of be there, like, uh, in case like I needed bumpers when I was bowling. And luckily, I was like a bull in a china shop. And I just ended up basically doing all the dumb stuff I wanted to do. But he had worked with Joe um, and they were friends and he thought we would get along. So we all got lunch and um, we became friends really quickly. And he did a thing that's very rare, which is he made hours of music before we edited it. So I didn't have to use any temp. But the crazy thing about the score was he didn't know how I was going to use it. So he read the script and he came on set but he'd send me music that he probably assumed I would use for a tension scene that I ended up using for like a comedy scene. And I ended up repurposing it all. So when he first launched it, he, I remember it so vividly, he was like in shock. And the way he described it was like, he was like, you just use my music in a way I never would have ever. And I love it, but this is just baffling for me. Cause it was like, I guess every single cue I used in the opposite way he was expecting. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I always felt like this movie needed to be music centric and song centric, especially in terms of navigating this tone. So like that stuff was really important. No, I know it really was. And I, I mean, like I said, I love the do you want to play song from Bill and Ted? Like I at the beginning, I instantly recognize that because I have the soundtrack behind me on vinyl and I've listened to it so much since the 90s. And then the the, the uh I, the Lost Boys one, and then the 
the public image LTD song in there. Like it was just like, yeah, that's from a shower sex scene in hardware. And then I put it over the shower sex scene in my movie. Yeah. There is a, layers to my stupid music choices they, they all like work for the scene and there's layers to why they're in the movie either thematically or in terms of humor um but primarily they need to work even if you've never heard any of them before like in terms of energy and tone but if you do know them it's like you know opening with the trading places party song going into the lost boys thing going into other stuff um almost every song is from another soundtrack but used in a way that is different enough that i think it's fine like i'm really i'm really annoying about songs and movies like if someone uses a song that was already used really well in the same type of movie i like i have to like turn a movie off <laughs> i'll give you I, an example of that if you can <laughs> uh i i can't because i still want to work with the filmmakers involved but i walked out of the movie five minutes in because they used a song that had just been used in a tarantino movie really well like the year before and i'm just like come on guys there's other songs <laughs> i mean that's usually my thing is just come on there's other songs and again someone will hear this and then watch my movie and be like his song choices suck fuck him but um, it's like you know and i just watched like an indie movie that came out a year after uh um inherent vice and then they use the vitamin c song i'm like so you just paid three hundred thousand dollars for a song that was in a pt anderson movie like why'd you spend the money like how about you find your vitamin c just go on spotify like there's a song in this movie that i lost uh, after spending 11 months trying to get it and I got so upset. I think I spent like a week just playing songs on Spotify to picture until I could finally find the song. And I ended up at Nick Cave and I called my music supervisor. I was like, I'm fucked. The only song that works for this scene is uh, this Nick Cave song and we can never get him. And she's like, well, let me make a call. And then I somehow fucking got a Nick Cave song. So you could have done that, man. Instead of using a song from Inherent Vice, do you just not want to listen to more music? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> But if you're making a movie and you don't know what songs are in Inherent Vice, why are you making movies? Like, you don't even have to like Inherent Vice. It's just like, P.T. Anderson's like appointment movies. Like, you gotta watch it. Especially if you want to make weird... Oh my god, this guy's totally gonna know who... If this guy ever listened to it, he'll know who I'm talking about. But we can just <laughs> edit out the whole podcast. We don't even need one. It's okay. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Um, and I gotta bring up... Uh, I love... And I gotta ask if you wrote this entire piece of dialogue scene, but... There's a moment in the movie where a couple of the actors are talking about uh, different ideas for a restaurant. And it was uh, pretty fantastic to hear them riff off each other on what uh, restaurants they would want to eat at. Was that I all would, you? I would, I, they were, there was all me standing out of frame and pitching them stuff. Um, <laughs> my favorite though, is I didn't come up with Fight Club, the restaurant. And there was a whole, okay, if you guys haven't seen the movie yet, go on your phone and hit skip ahead 30 seconds twice or something <laughs> or plug your ears. Um, but there's a fight club joke in the movie that he started and I'm like, this is so hack. And then he ends it not hacky. And I have the same journey. Every time I watch the movie is this, I get, I get scared where he's like uh, first rule of fight club, the restaurant. And I'm like, Oh no. And he's like, got to make a reservation. <laughs> and John Daly, man, just a magical, could have been the worst joke, but now it's one of my favorite ones in the movie. 
No, that so. was good. I'm glad you were off camera yelling these uh, ideas because <laughs> they were really job. funny. There's only like two lines in the movie that are completely improvised and it's John Daly saying nice tits, bro. And then the fight club joke. I think anything else that wasn't in the script was something me pitching to the actors while we were shooting. Wonderful. Wonderful. And you've worked with Charlene before, right? No, no, no. I thought you I did. did. I forgotten. I'm sorry, Charlotte. Oh. You're great. Oh, they never mind. I'll, I'll edit that part out. I thought you did. Hey, man, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, let's let's um, get into some fun questions uh, for a little bit. Yeah, these have all been fun. Are you kidding? Oh, oh good, good, good. Um, what is the most thrilling moment for you in film, both as a fan of movies, whether it be like you saw, you know, the first time front row, a movie of some sorts, and then as a filmmaker behind the camera, most thrilling. So what's the most thrilling time I've had watching a movie? Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing will will ever compare to the first time I saw The Matrix um, because I had no expectations for it. And I was like 16 and I didn't respond to giant amonic which i do love now but when i first saw giant amonic i could not meet that movie halfway uh and i remember sitting in the theater and there's like multiple moments of like sold out crowd in tempe arizona and the crowds never really reacted where i knew how much the audience was into it when there's like an acupuncture shot where he has a bunch of things on him and a bunch of people like gasp or like oh And I was like, oh, people are like really into this. But the moment when he walks through those two doors with a duffel bag filled with guns and then just like screaming, it was, and then dodge this, that movie made me feel like I drank 20 pots of coffee and then jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. It was like so exciting and you never knew where it was going. And yeah that's a really hard thing to match but there's been other things for me that there's nothing more exciting than watching a movie and knowing immediately that it's great like some of my almost all my favorite movies it took a few viewings and some of my favorite movies i didn't even really like the first time i watched them but anytime you watch a movie and it just i get emotional if a movie cuts to end credits at the exact right time there's something to me about watching a movie where they just nail it that will never not be exciting. Um, and then the other thing was like thrilling on on my side of making things. Yes. Um, I remember the first setup of a short I made cost a living in 2010 um, being so excited just that like the camera was rolling that I didn't that it's rolling and I'm watching nothing happens. And I turn to someone next to me. I'm like, do I say cut? And it was one of those things where I was like, so that'll never come back again. That's only a one time. only. <laughs> but with this, it was like, um, not to spoil it. And, and this will make me seem nuts. But I, when, when we did the final take that's in the movie of the, oh, there's a line that Janet says to Tom, um, in like the final seconds of the movie, when I said cut on that one, it was like I crashed from all the adrenaline or whatever I was building up because I was so happy with how it went. And I just felt like, okay, I know I'm going to be able to make a movie that I like. 
like because that was such a crucial moment for me and i felt like they nailed it and that was just i got really emotional and i like i left set <laughs> even for like 10 minutes i needed to like get my bearings because i it's like it was like i was so happy that like it made me like i think i cried a little bit but the point is movies are great <laughs> i mean that's the only reason i'm doing any of this it's just I've always, I'm pretty obsessive and I just feel really grateful that I got to make my own weird movie that was very much my own kind of thing, so. No, that's cool. I mean, we could talk hours about why movies are great for sure. So, I mean. My let's... last line of the script was movies are the fucking best. The end. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I don't know why I wrote that. It just amused me. But then some actors were like, I really like that ending that you just wrote that. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Because I think they're all into it. I mean, I, I get it. Uh, I, I get that, that mind frame because I believe that too. Um, a serious question for you. Um, okay. Why is Blood Simple one of the best movies ever made? Well, if I turn this around, you'd see I have a seven foot tall Blood Simple poster framed. And I literally... It's fucking hilarious that you said this because it's right here. The Criterion is like literally sitting next to me. Um, but uh, Blood Soul is maybe my favorite first movie ever from a director. Um, Blood Simple is so great to me because it's two brilliant people with their own voice and a brilliant cinematographer with his own voice not knowing exactly how they're supposed to make a movie, but just doing that, what they think a movie should be. And I also just love it too, because it has that aspirational element of like for 18 months, every festival turned it down and every distributor turned it down after they finished it. And I'm like, look, I would never say Happily is as good as Blood Simple, but if people said, we don't know what this is, the Blood Simple for that long, it just still drives, it's, I think that's just insane to me. It's such a perfect movie. That's good. I, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> it was a very serious question. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, I don't know. Like, have you, I posted on social media, but my, this giant French blood simple poster in my living room now. So. No, that's good. That's good. Um, are there any particular scenes in film uh, that is, that has stuck with you over the years that you wake up and you say, fuck, I love this scene. This inspires me to go do what I do. I'm sure there's several. Yeah, you know, weirdly, there's things that you realize as you get older. And if you watch way too many movies like I do, the things you keep going back to. And what I realize is like dancing scenes and musical scenes and kind of non-musicals tend to be the things that, like, that really hit me. Like I really love movies that open with a musical kind of element like temple of doom or the hunger uh streets of fire stop making sense obviously because it's a concert film but like the opening of the hunger is one of my favorite things ever it's this really kind of avant-garde almost music video-esque thing with bowie and um catherine deneuve and these two people that like pick up at a club and then bring them home and you don't realize they're vampires but it's so musical and it's like a construction that like I was trying with the opening of Happily to kind of do a little bit of the same thing too where it's very like 
kind of big and music oriented as opposed to verbal. Um, but the, the stuff that makes me do what I want to do, it's like, th there's a lot of key things. It's like a lot of like the Elmore Leonard movies, like the out of sight, get shorty back to back thing was like really huge for me. Um, but yeah, I could go all day, every day. It's like, you know, like a movie that like, I, I could never stop thinking about, I'll never get sick. It was like Punch Drunk Love, um, Mulholland Wait. Drive. There's just is, a lot. Yeah. And to me, it's like movies that are emotional, but also are not real. Like you relate to the emotional conflict, but it's not reality. And that's the same reason why I respond to kind of musical things. Like, you know, if it seemed like from Something Wild of Jeff Daniels and, um, uh, God damn it, what's her name? I'm having such a brain fart. Uh, Melanie Griffith. Yes, yes. Uh, there's like a scene of them dancing together that is so great and goofy that it all like is emotional at the same time and like that stuff is always exciting for me oh no that's good to hear um i like that you like the musical elements of that and into that you know you saying earlier that you love when people bring up the music of this film are there any musical bits uh from film that sticks out too oh man i mean yeah the <clears throat> the whole Jesse's girl uh, thing in Boogie Nights where uh, it's like, but they have two songs. I think it's like Motor and then Jesse's girl um, where he's sitting on the couch and Tom Jane is coked out of his mind. And they're doing like a slow push in on Wahlberg when you see like him recognize that he's hit rock bottom is like as good as movies get um, the, the 10,000 man song at the end of bottle rocket when uh dignan <laughs> says they'll never catch me man because i'm fucking innocent and then he just goes running um you know it's like obvious now everyone knows but like wes anderson his use of music in those movies like the rushmore soundtrack it just every one of those songs is just incredible but and then it's he does such a fine line between like enhancing his comedy or also enhancing the, the emotional aspect and then there's like obvious stuff like uh fight the power opening credits and do the right thing it's a fucking masterpiece moment it's just like a bolt of lightning that also recognizes like old hollywood at the same time it's so it's just such an exciting use of music um but it's like <clears throat> everything like one of the weirdest, one of the most exciting music moments I've ever felt in my life was I saw Kill Bill Volume 1 opening night. Um, and there's a song that comes up called like Nobody But Me when she's running up these this the railways, like uh, the stairway to like go and like chop someone's head off. And it just jumps in for like 15 seconds. And I never heard the song before. And I remember being like, I need to figure out what this fucking song is because it was so exciting. And also I'm like being in Departed. But the most formative music moment of my life was I saw Charlie's Angels opening night, directed by Mick Jean. And um, there's a scene where Sam Rockwell was dancing and smoking a cigarette to Faramanches Get the Fuck Up, but it's the Godzilla theme is like the beat to it. And there was no way to figure out songs then. And I, it took me a year to figure out what it was. Like I sat through the credits and I couldn't figure out what it was. Because in the movie, they don't really have the song. They kind of just have the beat. 
And by the time I finally figured out what it was, I was at a party and I was like, I was yelling at a guy. I'm like, what's this song? And it's like a bad scene from a movie. And he's like, it's Faramanch, get the fuck up. And I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I I like downloaded the song and like listened to that for like a month. Uh, I don't know why, but that moment of Sam Rockwell dancing uh, is so good. But Sam Rockwell has danced really well in a couple of bad movies now that you think about it. No, he's, I think it's in his contract. He dances in like everything. He's like, if I feel like this movie's not working, you need to let me dance. And it, <laughs> and it does redeem things, you know? It's like, he's good at it. He is damn good at it. Oh, yeah. this is so good. I love this. Oh, I know we're running out of time. I feel like I could talk to you for, you know, seven hours, Henry Rollins style. I mean, so. I, can, I, I, don't, I don't have to get cut off right away, but anyway. No, this is this is good because I, I like I like the the background posters you got. We just uh, there's 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 oh, well, there's two big trouble China ones. Yes, it's like a little aggressive, but it, I, it, I got actually a couple more with red frames. I haven't put them up yet. That's just gonna be the big trouble China wall. Um, nice, but yeah, I, I, I like that. It, it's interesting because um, just a couple weeks ago. I show Big Trouble in Little China to a neighbor who's my age, uh, 39, 40, who's never seen it. Mm-hmm. And so to watch it with them, my mind was just like, oh my goodness, what is this 39, 40-year-old brain thinking watching this movie that we watched when we were much younger? Because there's so much going on in this perfect movie called Big Trouble in Little China. It's a Western, it's a sci-fi. It's my favorite movie of all time. It's my number one. It's your number one? Yeah. It's your number one. So, and, it, and, it, and it's fantastic. And it's just, they ended up loving it still at this age. But is there something special about Big Trouble in Little China that John Carpenter, where his music with the Coupe de Ville's and his blending of genres and just having a great uh, leading man who doesn't really do much, but he still gets it all done? Is, is there something to I mean, that? Big Trouble in Little China has a impossible to recreate you know, they tried with some stuff in Thor Ragnarok and it was really funny. But in terms of doing a movie like that, where it's both exciting and kind of making fun of the lead character at the same time. And I, I saw it for the first time when I was 18. And I think the reason why Kurt Russell's my favorite and that's my favorite movie is as simple as, you know, he shoots the ceiling and Rubble knocks him out for the finale. And then he comes back and then kisses the girl and doesn't know his face is covered in lipstick when he's being really macho dealing with the bad guy. The way that the movie kind of oscillates back and forth between him being capable and not and his like pitch perfect John Wayne impression and also how they incorporated all these things from Hong Kong movies at the time that were not mainstream at all. Like, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub stuff and all these things. But the reality is, it's just, it's, I can watch a movie once a month for like my life and I never get sick of it. And the commentary is really good. But it, it, it just, it always feels like a magic trick to me because the opening is mysterious and cool, but also like a guy defending Jack Burton and saying we're forever in his debt is hilarious because like, are they? <laughs> and then that scene was a reshoot that the studio made him add. <laughs> And it almost feels like Carpenter's taking the piss. But I think there's that famous story where they showed it to the head of the studio for the first time. And I think the quote is, uh, the head of the studio said to John Carpenter, you know, your lead character, he's just, he's just not that good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they had to see the finished movie before they realized that Jack Burton is sort of a lovable idiot. 
um it's great man and it's got one of those romantic endings of all time <laughs> it no it does it's like are you gonna kiss the girl nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> he's like sooner or later i end up rubbing everyone the wrong way but you know <laughs> yo no it's one it's a oh it's so good and i'm glad we got to talk a little bit about that uh but yeah man we gotta have you back on my bloody podcast at some point just to talk movies um spotlights on you now tell everyone where they can find you online and happily happily the major motion picture event of 2021 comes out on march 19th in theaters i'm not entirely sure where yet but it's gonna be in a bunch of cities and on demand digital vod which means if you have an apple tv you can rent it if you're on amazon you can rent it you have a roku you can rent it if you're like on cable and you're renting a movie on demand, you can rent it. it. Any way to rent a movie on your TV with your controller via the internet, uh, you will be able to rent it. But you also can buy it on iTunes for a cheap price, in my opinion. And it comes with my commentary. So if you got to the end of this podcast and you, for some reason, still want to hear me talk, I have a commentary on the digital purchase. So happily, March 19th, and I'm on Twitter at, at BD Grabinski and Instagram the same and also now Letterboxd so I can keep track of the fact that I've been watching on average two and a half movies a day in 2021. Excellent, excellent. And we are My Bloody Podcast uh, and we'll be back uh, next episode. Thank you so much, Ben David.